calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Writers Jam podcast. And today, I'm pretty stoked to have Jen Blackmer on the show. She was the 2015 Penn Laura Pell's International Foundation for Theater Emerging American Playwright Award winner. She also happened to teach with me at Ball State University, um, which is how I came across her um, and her work and everything that she does. And um, just been really impressed with not only the output, uh, but the kinds of work that she does and the sort of way that she approaches it. And as someone who spent a long time, 10 years before I quit um, as a professor, I'm always really interested in how people navigate both the teaching and the writing. Um, so we don't spend a lot of time on that, but that was what initially um, drew her uh, or interested me. Continuing with the sort of thematic stuff that we have been working with after the Trump election, a large part of the thing, a large part of our discussion, a large part of what we talked about is really the importance of personal in the narrative that you have. Um, for a long time, I feel like, at least in my life, the arts have been a thing that we have sort of by and large, taken for granted. Like we, that is a thing that we just expect to be around. And, and, and maybe this is just a lens that I have filtered it through because that is sort of the complacent world in which I got into where sort of didn't worry so much about the politicalness of, of what I was writing, um, and sort of explored and, and really kind of fucked around with whatever I wanted to write about. And then the election happened with Trump and maybe more so than the rest of my life, I've sort of began to say like, not that these things matter, not that the stories that we tell matter, but that I, we have to sit down and have these moments where we say, okay, maybe we don't just get to create everything we want to create. Maybe we have to be very targeted in the kinds of things we create. And so our conversation really sort of swirls around like the importance of both telling stories, um, but also in some ways are we limited now? Like now do we have to be overtly, um, or even, even subversively political 
um, with a very specific point of view. Like that's the antithesis of a lot of the, the way that I write. Um, my point of view is, is not that there is a single universal truth, but that there are lots of truths that go together that sort of make the world so difficult. And so I'm trying to always illuminate what that means. So it was great to sit down and talk with such an accomplished and smart writer um, about those things. And this was recorded several months ago. I'm recording the intro now in May. We did this at the end of last year. So it was really near the end, you know, like, right. It was still pretty raw. The election was still pretty raw. So Jen and I had a really good conversation. And um, one of the she's one of the things that I will miss about Ball State was having that in uh, that sort of smart writerness and in, in proximity, even if we didn't get to see each other as much as I wanted. Uh, on the business, the Geeky Press just put out Who's Your Lit, which is our literary magazine, and it comes out May 19th, but you can buy it now at thegeekypress.com backslash Who's Your Lit. The Dear America Project has uh, stopped taking submissions because we got so many, um, and we're a very small group of folks, so we're now working on what that selection process will look like. So we're excited to get that project going. Um, we got a couple other projects happening, a couple other book projects going on. Um, as always, we'd love to hear what you're doing. Um, if you're in the greater Indianapolis area or in Indiana, we'd love for you to come to one of our events. If you are not, I'd love to hear what you're doing. Um, I travel quite a bit, and one of my favorite things to do is meet writers. So hearing what you're doing, we promote out stuff all the time. Like this is not a business and we are not making money off of it. We do this because we love writing and writers. So, uh, we're, uh, but we can only let people know what we know. So feel free to drop us a line. And if you're ever in Indianapolis, let us know, even if you don't come to our events, because, uh, nothing beats taking a writer out of town, um, for dinner, um, and having a nice conversation. But that's all neither here nor there, because you came today to listen to Jim Blackmer. So I will turn this over to our conversation. So I've known you or known of you for uh, six or seven years when I got here. And last year you won, was it last year you won a pen? 2015 you won a pen 2015, award. yeah. That's like a big yeah. fucking deal. <laughs> Do people around yeah. here understand that's a big deal? You know what? My, my colleagues in the English department do. And that was awesome. So this thing happened. And the the most amazing thing about it actually was that I found out via social media because they didn't contact me first. What they what? they they have this thing where they said, all right, well, we're we're going to put out a press release in the New York Times, and then that's how we notify. Oh, so you found out like a link to the New York Times. It, it was actually not even that. It was a friend of mine um, out in Oregon put something on my Facebook page, and it said. Way to go, Jen Blackmer. And I was like, okay, sure, what is this? And uh, then somebody else put something on there and said, you're in such great company. 
Um, and I was like, what, what's going on? So then I went to the web and I Googled my name and it was the first thing that came up. I was That's like, insane. you have got to be kidding me. Yeah. And then we got an email, <laughs> um, probably about an hour later. And it was from uh, Penn. And it said, you know, the New York Times press release has hit. Congratulations. And I was like, oh, my God. And then... uh, then, uh, Did you know you were a finalist? I did know I was a finalist. So at least you knew that. They at least told you that. Yeah, but to be honest, um, I I thought it was... I I thought I had a snowball's chance at hell. I mean, it was one of those things. Yeah, (laughs) I I was... and the nomination came from um, an agent friend of mine in New York, and she doesn't even, she's not even my rep. I mean, we've just been friends. And uh, she, I had seen something about call for nominations, and she said, would you be interested? And I was like, heck yeah. And that was the last I right. thought about it. I mean, like, it was sure. just. <laughs> right, because that's a big, like, I don't, I'm sure nobody in journalism where I work, I'm sure nobody here knows why that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, do, the, do, do your does they, the theater department they, Yeah, they totally do. And there were a, a few of, of my colleagues you know, here, Michael O'Hara, Bill Jenkins. I mean, they yeah. all knew. Um, but what was what was awesome was um, all of the emails that I got from, from my friends in the English department. They yeah. were like, oh, my God, this is great. Yeah. Right? Um, As a writer, it's like it doesn't get – I mean, yeah. other than like the book of – you know, which is yeah. different, like uh, the National Book Award and the Pulitzer. But, yeah. Like yeah. that sort of – or the no, I guess the Nobel Prize in literature. Sure. But like – yeah, but that one's, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, sure. So, it was it was one of the more surreal days of, of my life. And yeah. it was really it was it was great. How so. much did your life change as a writer after that? You know, um my I mean I know your daily life didn't yeah. change, but like externally the way like phone calls get returned now. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and there was a you know, it's it's interesting because playwrights in particular, we're all writers do this, but but the the world of playwriting is is so competitive. I mean, so very very competitive because you're also I mean, whereas a novelist, a poet is dealing with the politics of publication, yeah. you know, in the theater, your work is never done until it's produced. Yeah. So not only are you dealing with um a theater company wanting to do your work, but there's a significant financial investment in that. Sure. And it's very, very hard to find companies who are interested in doing new plays. It's just, I mean, it's not cost effective to do new work, to do untested work. Because people don't, they don't know if people are going to show up. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, people show up for Shakespeare because they know that. Sure. Right? But but um, new plays are very, very tough. And you get stuck in what's called, literally in the theater world, it's called development hell, uh-huh. which is where you'll get a reading and then they'll rehearse it for a while and you'll work on the play. And then you'll get another reading and you'll work on the play. And then you get a third reading and you'll work on the play. And after a while, you're like, I don't want to work on this play anymore. Right. <laughs> I want to see it. And so um, what what happened with this particular acknowledgement was that I'd been feeling for some time like I'd been shouting in the dark. You know, it's pitch black and I'm just shouting and I'm hoping that somebody's right. over there and they're listening. Right. And uh, I got the sense that people were listening. And that was probably the biggest change for me. Yeah. That there was a um, not legitimacy. That's not what I'm looking for, because writers have to be content right. with their process. I mean, they, they have to. It's, it's right. something that you do for yourself. It's a sort of weird paradox if you do it for yourself and you do it for other people. Um, so it, it wasn't that. I, I think it was really just an acknowledgement that someone had read it. And, there was an and, error. Yeah, <laughs> and, and got what I was going for. 
And the the cool thing as well is that companies then began to take notice, um, particularly as, as Penn being an organization that's not strictly theater related. Yeah. There was a sense of, of sort of a literary um, I don't think of Penn as theater at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I don't have, know if that's what it is, but as a writer, like... No, they only have three awards for playwrights. Yes. Yeah. Emerging playwright, mid-career playwright, and then sort of an American... End of the line. No, yeah, yeah. You know, somebody's like, all right, you're done. Right. <laughs> Here's job. your lifetime Good achievement. Right. Bravo. <laughs> and so, so that's... I mean, they, they've got those three awards, yeah. and um, but that there was, a, I guess, a heft mm-hmm. to what I was doing. And Penn, in particular, is about... Uh, social justice, mm-hmm. and that's something that's that's very important to me, in terms of how my work tries to approach very complex yeah. problems. You know, and this piece in particular, the the piece that was recognized is um, Human Terrain, and it has had the most traction of anything I've done, and it deals with the war in Iraq, um, and a particular program that was started by the military. In 2006, that embedded um, uh, social scientists, so mm-hmm. anthropologists, into military units. Oh, shit, that's fascinating. And, yeah, and it, it was an actual program, and it was disbanded in 2014 because of ethical issues, sure. which is what the play's about. Um, but it, What were uh, they studying? They were studying, well, it was these, these social scientists, these academics were embedded in these military units to serve as cultural advisors to the military. Huh. But that is sure. an ethical conundrum yeah. because, you know, anthropologists in particular, ethnographers are, we are supposed to do no harm to the populations sure. that we're studying. And yet here you are working with the military whose primary purpose right. is to do, do harm, harm right. you know? And so, so they didn't help them win the arts and minds of the Iraqis. No, that was the whole point. <laughs> right? But no, it became a, a, a thicket, right. really. I mean, I it sounds. I mean, it sounds like the worst Orwellian thing, right? Totally. Like yeah, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna put you in there and learn all the things that, like, we're gonna learn the it's the what is the guy's name Frank Lutz the, uh-huh. yeah. the guy, like it sounds like that, right? Yeah. We're gonna yeah. go and learn the words that we can say so that exactly. you can accept the things that we're doing to you, right? As we roll in with our tanks, yeah, right? Like exactly. Yeah. But that's not what <laughs> these these people are trained to do. I mean, they're sure. academics. They ask tough questions. They ask questions with no answers. They, they thought they were there for good reasons. Exactly. And exactly. Then realized, like, and you know, the military is not interested in hearing about complexity. Right. And uh, you know, the the other thing that that prompted this particular story is uh, I come from a military family. Yeah. So all five of my great uncles fought in World War II. My parents were both involved with the military. My father was a civilian who worked for the Navy for a number of years, and my mother was a top secret secretary for the Air Force during Vietnam. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just been in my family. And I was tired of portrayals of military people, particularly the soldiers on the ground, as just being wrong, right? right. That, that to serve an ideology on the left yeah. as much as, you know, as the right does that, the left is doing yeah. that as well. And it was frustrating to me because these are, these are you know, fully fleshed out people and yeah. they have motivations for doing what they do. Some of them are, you know, in it for the college money. Some yeah. of them are in it because they want to kill people. Yeah. So that becomes then the big question is how do we look at this massive behemoth of the military yeah. 
and break it down to the fact that it is a collection of people much like right. any other institution. Like America. Yeah, totally. And we've shown what kind of shit show that can be. Well, exactly. So <laughs> it's interesting because as, uh, as a journalist, I have to – I did magazine writing and books and things and – um, I'm from Appalachia, which is overrepresented in the military um, for actually yeah. for really interesting reasons. Um, there's a book called The 13 Nations of America, yeah. um, it's, which is great, right? And one of the reasons they're overrepresented is because most of those people come from borderlands where wars destroy the world that they live in. And so their Appalachians tend to be adamantly opposed to war. Mm-hmm. But when war happens... They go all in because they come from places that were destroyed as two armies rolled over them, wow. right? So they join yeah. because they're like, if there's going to be destruction, we want to be able to, right? So there's this sort of really complex relationship to it. So when my students will, like, call them heroes, right, because mm-hmm. they're just mm-hmm. like, oh, these heroes. I'm like, listen, guys, mm-hmm. like, ask anybody. And I love it when I have veterans in the class because I'm like, oh, are you, yeah, right, are you yeah, a hero? Yeah, and they're yeah. like, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> right? Like, it, this yes. one, we externalize this view of what the military is. And not that they're not, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Right? I'm very glad that people do. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that it happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little annoyed that we have a complex that makes that continue to happen. And that's the tricky part. Right. I mean, that's where it becomes. How do you have that discussion least, in the world? Yeah. Right? Like, yes, I support you, but the complex is terrible. And, like, I know you're actually here because you're afraid of what's going to happen if you don't. Right. Right, right. Or the fact that we have, you know, a, a military budget that is entirely broken and, you know, you're spending millions of dollars on tanks that just sit there. Right. And then that leads us to economic issues right. because those tanks are being built so that people will have jobs. Right. Not because they're needed. Right. Because, you know, our... Then we're going to sell them to somebody. Uh, yeah. Who right. has no business having right. tanks, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it is, it, I, it's always interesting the pushback I get from writers, particularly young writers, I tell them, like, they're not heroes. Uh-huh. Firefighters aren't heroes. Cops mm-hmm. aren't heroes. Like, they are people that are doing a job. They may do a heroic... It's like Noble. I'm writing a book about Appalachia, mm-hmm. and the people refer to the sort of nobility of the working class. And I'm like, guys, nobility comes in single moments, but that doesn't mean that you aren't flawed. Yeah. Like, my family owned slaves. Mm-hmm. They were Democrats who owned slaves. There's nothing noble in that. Right. Right? And so to say, like... They were hardworking people that lived in a hard scrabble world. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. and they were assholes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and they but, can be both. Right, that's the thing. Right, that's the interesting yeah. story. Right, and that's where uh, you know one of my favorite uh, uh, notions that I remind myself and my students of regularly is the the uh, and it came from Bertolt Brecht, but he was just you know parroting other people who came before him. But the the idea of character is contradiction. Yeah, that. Character is not necessarily something to be defined. The character, in fact, comes out of those those notions about people that we can't define. Yeah. Right? So what would, I'm, I'm struggling in a piece I'm working with now, what would prompt a woman who is devoted to her child, let's say, to choose a job that takes her away from her mm-hmm. child for months and months at a time, mm-hmm. right? And that becomes... Is that not personal at all? Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, we'll yeah. get to that in a minute. But in this instance, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't connect with a person who would do that. And my response to that is, well, well, why? Like, what you kind know? of weird empathy problem yeah. do you have well, that you can't... In particular, <laughs> you know, and, and since we've been political already, I mean, I, not only as a writer, but as a female writer yeah. who is devoted to writing complex women. Yeah. 
in plays and films uh-huh. because we have a dearth of these roles. Sure. We just don't have them. So uh, I have a, a, one of my plays in particular is a, a female scientist is the, the protagonist, and she has been forced because of her field, which is physics, to to really figure out how to function in a male-driven world, not only as a scientist, but also as an academic, mm-hmm. because all of her colleagues are men. All of the administration where she works are men. So she has to function in that world, and yet she is confronted with the death of her mother, which is what the play is about, and how that experience she doesn't just talk to her changes about her. Yeah, no, gosh, no, gosh, no. But um, the play was done in Minneapolis, and one of the reviews, the first review that came out, uh, and this was a, a learning moment for me, was a mixed review. And the reason it was mixed was because they couldn't stand the main character. <laughs> and they couldn't stand how dismissive she was of her mother and how you know she she didn't you know give everything she could to her mother and I'm like that's what the story is about. Right. Thank you, you for know? giving it. Yeah, yeah. But, but then but the, she was, the reviewer, oddly enough, it was a, a, a woman, was making this snap. But that's not shocking at all, right? Yeah, it's not, unfortunately. But it's she was making a snap judgment about this person, this character, without considering the entire movement of the story because right. the story was about how it changed her. Sure. And so the end and the end of the story, she was more open. She right. was more, uh, you know, able to love and express herself. Right. Whereas in before, you know, she wasn't. But so, even if she's not, that's irrelevant, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's still yeah. movement, right? Yeah, like it's still at movement. the end of the day, moving to being more open and loving is sort of into what we expect from women. Exactly. Right? Like yeah. I was having this discussion the other day with like, like as a white guy, like, I can, like, there can be 50 shows on TV about, like, the man-child, right? Like, Uh, who's sort of broken and, like, they never, like, they kind of emotionally get it but never really connect. And then you can also have really deeply compelling, like, other characters, right, Mm -hmm. that sort of are on the other end who are, um, and the problem doesn't seem to be sort of the trope of the sort of emotional woman or whatever, mm-hmm. but that's the only thing, right? Like, and when you try to do the complexity, there's yeah. not, there's not a million roles on TV, right? That's right. And it's, it's, and that's for white women, right? For black yeah, women, like, it's entirely, right. it's, there's, oh, there are other levels right. entirely. There's like two shows ever of, yeah. uh, that are Asian American, yeah. right? Ever yeah. on network TV. Yeah. Like, so yeah. how do we even begin to deal with, you have, like everything does sort of get pushed through people's own experiences for anybody, I think that's not a white guy, because we have a thousand roles right. that you can sort of say, "Yeah, but this is—he's a dick here, but this guy over here is fine." Right. Every woman that shows up on TV has to be a nurturer, everything, or a girlfriend, right? Or a, you know, but also a tough system and, and tough, uh, but, but not, not too tough, right? Right, not too tough. Like a uber feminist, but also not yeah. like yeah. And because there's four, right? And so, I think those reviews are just going to—I mean, yeah. I suspect it's changing from, you know, I always tell for millennials it is because they've grown up in a world that is different than the one that you and I grew up in. Right. And I'm sensing a little bit of, of, of tension, or I'll I'll even go so far as to say discomfort with this in a good way. Because um, we are, you know, politically and artistically where I believe we're, we're pushing at a paradigm shift. I mean, things are going to change. Yeah. But I was talking to my students about this the other day. The problem is, is that before things can change in, in, in a 
big way, which is what a paradigm shift suggests to us, it, there's a lot of discomfort. Right. There is a lot of people pushing back. Right. There's a lot of, of, of It's conflict. the dying embers of the white man empire. Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, that's what this is. Like, right. what a patient does before they die. Right. Talk to any doctor, right? Yeah. Before they die, they have a miraculous comeback, and they think, I'm going to live forever, and that's yeah. the death row. Right. It feels like that's... I'm writing a book of essays on millennials and baby boomers. Basically, it's an argument that they're the same. Mm. Um, just sort of polar opposites, sure. right? Yeah. And I don't know how old you are, but like I think you're in Gen X. Like we're I'm in Gen that X. sort of neighborhood, yes, right? Totally. We're the smallest generation, uh-huh. and so there's this massive two generation shift that's happening. Like we have almost we're going to get like one Gen X president. Yeah. There's been like three boomers, and there's going to be like three millennials, <laughs> right? Millennials, so there yeah, hasn't yeah. there hasn't been a way for this to slowly change. Right. Like it went from like. Only men and women get married to gender fluidity mm-hmm. overnight. Right. And there's no way. And that's what I tell everybody. Like, Donald Trump, his grandparents were born in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Like, there's zero chance he's going to understand quantum computing. Right. Right? Zero, zero. chance. Zero. And, right? and he's not interested. That's the other thing that is quite clear when you look at his public persona is that and what, what is frightening to me about it. Is is so we are on the verge of this sort of major cultural shift that's coming up, but that 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 the pushback is an anti curiosity. It's yeah. an anti intellectual um, uh, push, yeah. and it makes. I think it's more fear sad. than anti intellectual. Yeah, I think it is. A, it is. It is. If you were, if your mentor for people that were born just after the Civil War, right at a mm-hmm, time when mm-hmm. horses were and the universe was small and there weren't bones, right? Gender, flu- <laughs> right? gender yeah. fluidity is a thing that you can't even wrap your. There's no right. way unless you are an exceptional intellect mm-hmm. that you can wrap your head around what that change is. And so I feel like this throw, this death throw of mm-hmm. this sort of is. I'm always loath to call people intellectual or dumb because. Like, that's, like, dumb is a thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's fear. I think it is. And it's sure. fear it's is easily choice. defeated. Yeah. It is a choice. I think it's, I think it's, it I, I, I don't think it's dumb. I think it's people choosing not to deal with, yeah. with, with the fact the that there are phones and gender yeah. fluidity. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that, in fact, there's a, that that is a, un, that's an uncomfortable state of being. Yeah. That is a, something that doesn't make sense. Right. Well, it's not a yes or no. It's like what yeah. we talked about with the military. It's right. not black or white. That's absolutely right. Um, and yeah. most things on earth are like that. I mean, one of my one of my favorite um, quotes, and I come back to it time and time again, is um, uh, French historian Michel Disserteau wrote a book called Heterologies. And there's this long sort of quote, but in it is this one sentence that says, identity freezes the gesture of thinking. And I come back to that time yeah. and again, that as soon as you label something as yeah. X, right, yeah. that you are no longer able to think about X, mm-hmm. that in fact, thinking is a process, it's, yeah. a, it's a movement, it's a, a, it, it grows and it evolves right. and it changes and it's a, right. you know, and this, this is, is what we do as writers, I think. Right. It's no, it's, nobility is, you can't, the working class isn't noble. Yeah. There can be moments of nobility, Absolutely. right? Like that's yes. the thing, right? Like yes, going back to those contradictions yeah. we were talking about earlier. It's you know, it's I find that's the thing you know that I find so interesting. So I'm writing this book. My my family founded the poorest county in the country. Hmm. Didn't used to be, mm-hmm. right? but it is now. Clay County, New York Times called it the hardest time to live, the hardest place to live in America. Yeah, right? yeah. That's, now- 
That was up uh, in an article fairly recently yeah, that I saw. Fa- they I, referred so to it. My family did that, okay. right? And so I'm writing this book because they came over and they were rich. Mm-hmm. Well, because people that people that own land were not poor, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. these Appalachians were not always poor. When you hear the Scotch-Irish thing, like, they were just, I'm like, no, no, like, the people that owned the land, there were 21 companies that owned all the land in Kentucky, yeah, right? Like, yeah. it wasn't like poor working class people. But it has devolved into that, right? And there are lots of historical reasons. The government took money. Outside corporations took money. um, All this stuff. And so beginning to sort of, the book is about the invisible forces that we accept shape black America and brown America. Like women, like there are things that women can't explain that happen to them, right? Because they're single individual moments that if you just say, well, this moment happened, someone like me is going to go, well, get over that. And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's every day. Yeah. And so you don't understand the invisible yes. force of what that is, right? Yeah. And, and, and so it seems when the election happened, I looked at my wife and I'm like, fuck, I have the narrative for this piece now. Yeah. Like yeah. it is, yeah. the, it is the, the forces that shape the people that, not you, but the people that you think are dumb and voting against their self-interest. I'm going to tell you why they're not. Mm-hmm. Because there's invisible forces that we don't talk about. Right. Which is class. Uh, exactly. In America. Yes. Um, and the other component of it is that my mentor is black. And he sort of taught me about this stuff is that the only way I can explain racism to those folks is to explain it through their own experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And I sort of realized like Bill was training me to go talk to those folks about yeah. the invisible forces. And so when we were like the point when we were talking about art before we turned <laughs> this on, like I feel like now art, I can't write whatever I want. Now. Yeah. I feel very much like, oh, I am. the I look like and sound like the thing everybody in this country who is on the left is afraid of. Uh-huh. Like, I'm going to spend the next four years saying, like, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Hey, I'm, one yeah. Of the good ones. I'm one of the 36% yeah, yeah, yeah. that voted the other way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that seems to me artistically like, oh, shit, I have to then go tell stories that you couldn't tell, mm-hmm. that my wife couldn't tell, because I am that, this, I am from that disaffected working class, and I'm the white guy. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's the notion of responsibility. Yeah. Is do you have that? I do. I do. And I, this is also, I think, what's important to me to instill in my students is that, you know, when you, when you choose to make a piece of art, when you choose to utter something or put something into the world, that your responsibility doesn't end there. And in fact, there is, you know, a lot of our students will come to us, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, um, with a sense of, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, yeah. I'll put it out there, whatever. Yeah. Or uh, particularly in the world is dominated by social media, which is such a force that, you know, you just put anything out there, boom, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever happens. And it's like, no, 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 no. You are responsible for how what you say is perceived by an audience, not in the sense of, oh, I shouldn't ever say anything controversial. That's right. not it at all. In fact, you should say what you feel. You should say what you think, but you More should than also... More ever today, yeah, right? Like, particularly... Yes, particularly today. Yeah. Particularly now. Because now we're you, living in a world where I can say what's on everybody's mind. That's right. Right? Yes. Like but if that's, that's the, where the disconnect is, is that people out there are saying whatever is on their mind, but then they're not prepared to defend it. Right. Or listen. Or listen when right. somebody else is doing the same thing. Right. So, you know, somebody will say something that's particularly racist. Oh, it's just what what is on my mind. Right. Well... We need to, to dig into that. Right. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not a racist. Right. You know, and it's just sort of 
this yeah. circular logic that is like, no, no, no. If you are going to say something, right. I will defend to the death your uh, ability to say it. Right. But you also have to be willing to step up and say, I said this. Right. 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 And accept the consequences of. Yeah. Uh, so when you do, when you when you sit down to write. And I know it's just been a week or two since the election, but even leading up to that, like the tenor and tone of the discussion in this country over the last nine months has really been fucking frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think about that when you write? Like now more than ever, I, my plays, my writing needs to be about this discomfort, right? Like we were talking mm-hmm. about the discomfort. Like I can't, like I can't, when I write about Appalachia, like I have to. I went back and re-edited my introduction and said, like, okay, uh, there's going to be no blacks or women in this story. Mm-hmm. And so that has to be acknowledged. Like, they were wiped out of history for these reasons. Like, sure. like, I couldn't just tell the story of yeah. Appalachia without saying, like, you're going to not see some things. Yeah. It became very purposeful. And now I've sort of, the narrative exposition through the whole piece is, like, reminding mm-hmm. people, like, remember. Yeah. Well, and I love that. I Because I think that that is, again, connected to this to this idea of, of this is what you do as a writer is not arbitrary. It's purposeful. Right. And it, and it is designed to participate in the, the global conversation in the, the local conversation and the global conversation that you can't, you don't just throw something out there and then forget about it, that it is a purposeful utterance. Or I can't say like, well, there's these other books about blacks and like bell hooks, just go read bell hooks. Or in fact, you know, putting yourself and you're situating yourself in, in this. Is this a thing you're not thinking about or have you always? Well, to a certain extent, but the stuff that I write is, is representational. So, so you have, you, you know, stories that are that are being embodied, whether it is on on the stage or on film. And what I have found over the last couple of weeks, as I'm going back and looking <laughs> at my work, is that I was doing a lot of this stuff anyway. Yeah. So uh, here's an example. So I'm working on um, I'm working on my very first original screenplay right now. Um, Human Terrain was adapted into a screenplay, and um, so that is what sort of introduced me into the world of film, which I'm really having a great time with right now. And until um, the director like too many words. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And so you know, my manager and I were looking at possibilities for my next project, and I said, "Well, I want to you know create a screenplay from scratch because Human Terrain, as well as it works as a screenplay." And I honestly think that the the journey for that piece has been about eight years in the making. And I do think so that it was, yeah. That, well, I, I think that it was intended to be a movie because yeah. what essentially happened was when I had the opportunity to adapt it into a screenplay, I was able to, once I, once I did that work, I was able to easily solve the play's problems. And yeah. the play had some problems. Yeah. So, so that um, relationship was sure. really cool. Um, but now I'm in the process of envisioning um, a film from the ground up. And do you see it differently? In I your do, I do. And what's what's been happening is since the election, I've gone back and looked at the story that I'm spinning right now, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, <laughs> as opposed to trying to, you, you know, explain it or change it yeah. because of the election and this sort of new political place yeah. that we find ourselves. It's like, I'm looking at it through a new set of glasses. So I'm like, Oh, I see changed, the meaning has changed. It's like, it's still in, in, it's still embedded within the story. So the story itself yeah. hasn't changed, but the way I'm sure. looking at the story has 
matured and it, it's almost as though it's it found its importance right if this that makes is, sense. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, the day the election happened i've been struggling with my book for four years and, and when it happened i looked at my wife and i wrote twenty thousand words over the last four days yeah. i just went through yeah. and i was like i now know that i had yeah. stories i called them the bar stories right mm-hmm. like the stories that i'd done four years of research and now the narrative is just there like yeah. it's easy to write the exposition mm-hmm. in some ways it's not that different from Night of the Living Dead right which was originally cast with a white actor yeah. and then at the last minute uh, they the last audition was an African American mm-hmm. and the white lead said oh he's better than me Yeah. and then Night of the Living Dead becomes this sort of play on racial identity in the yeah, 60s, right? Yeah. Like, the, nothing changed about it other That's than exactly the face right. yep. of the main actor, yes. right? And suddenly that becomes a totally different movie. Yeah. Um, and why it's iconic. The the setting of it is a, it's in the future. The piece um, you're working on. The, the piece I'm working on right now, it's set 80 years in the future. And um, everything's fine. Right? It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it has become very much. Uh, meditation on the haves versus the have-nots. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to explore that yeah. uh, as I was working on the story. And yet, after the election, what happened was that became way more concrete. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so I knew from a thematic perspective what I wanted to do. But then as I'm looking at this sort of new political world, I'm like, oh, okay, so then that becomes this and and that then this part of it becomes the fact that the last four presidents have been uh billionaires sure. you know because that was a precedent that was set back right. here oh okay so i see so now money plays oh, so much more of a yeah. part in politics and yet there is this sort of scrappy group of have nots if you will yeah. that keep trying to make their voices heard but so so it's almost like what we've been seeing yeah at Standing Rock and what we've been right. seeing Occupy, in the major cities Wall and Occupy to, to an extreme yeah. now, right? But is it, do you see it as the same as the Tea Party? You know, I, yes, I do. I do. I think, um, you know, because we are allowed to have our opinions and because we are allowed to have our ideologies, um, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the ideology of the Tea Party, but you know, can they say what they want to say? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Of course they can. But do you think it is... I think much of the I think so obviously it was like underwritten and funded right and there were these sock puppet groups but I, I know a lot of folks from where I'm from who don't have money who were part of the Tea Party and were adamant about it and very much that same Occupy Wall Street like very yeah. much like they were disgusted with the amount of money and the ways in which money made people make decisions in government right like that was for them. They didn't care about the Koch brothers. Yeah, and that part—that's the part I mean. That's uh, yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. I, and I, Larry Lessig, who um, founded the Creative Commons, mm-hmm. um, Harvard lawyer, now working on uh, at Harvard, um, has has written a lot about how those two movements are the same: how Occupy Wall Street and um, and the Tea Party on its on on the atomic level. Mm-hmm. As yep. he went around the country and hung out with groups, saying yep. like, "You can find this thread." Now, there's this other thread that runs through, like there's sort of the socialist thread that yeah. runs through the Occupy Wall sure. Street and the sort of racist, misogynistic, like you know, weird thread that runs uh-huh. through the other one. But that there's a lot of commonality. Yeah. And in fact, it's the class warfare that keeps that commonality. And that's something that we're also, I think, afraid of, is that if you were to... You oh, know, in America? Yeah. Oh, fuck, if yeah. you were to talk to, you know, an, an Occupy protester and say, you know, I can see all these, all these, you know, intersections. Right. Here's, what where you guys guys, are doing. Yeah. Here's where you guys connect. They'll be like, absolutely not. We right. have nothing to do with these people. And 
you know, again, it's it's about the the intensity of the rhetoric and how people are they want to define things and ideas very very quickly. Yeah. And then be done with it. Does your art, so now does your art, so I've asked that question because mm-hmm. as you're talking about the haves and haves nots, like when you write, who, are you thinking about Occupy Wall Street or are you thinking about the Tea Party? I'm thinking about both. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to sort of look I'm, at those yeah. intersections. Yeah. That's what I mean by the political, like it's very easy to go and write the noble working class from Appalachia. But like yeah. to me, I have to be complex about it because we haven't been. Right. And the other thing is that the, and I, you know, without going into the specifics of what's happening is that the, the, the haves, let's say, yeah. um, in, in this particular world, in this particular dystopia, there mm-hmm. are people there with that corporation who are good people. Sure. You know, and, and one of them is, is in particular, is like, I am working for this company because this company is going to change the world. Mm-hmm. This company has the resources and the technology to make things better, which is why I'm doing this, right? right? So sure. you can't just look at him and say, oh, you're evil right. because you work for you it's know, the machine. Evil Corp. It's the machine. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so there are, it's, it's what, what is so fascinating to me and what I think drives my process more than anything are those moments where you think you've got somebody figured out, but then you don't, right. You realize that, well, wait a minute, you know, he's motivated by an entirely, um, even altruistic point of view. I may not agree with what he's doing, but in a free society, yeah. you know, people have the right to conflict with each other. So yeah. then what do we do in, in those yeah. very complex situations? Nobody, I always tell my students, nobody wakes up and thinks they're Hitler. Yeah. Right, like almost everybody is getting up and doing things because they believe it's the right thing. Exactly. Um, so I was Michael Lewis. I was a, a teaching assistant for Michael Lewis when I was in graduate school, and he was working on. He had just finished a new new thing. He was working on Moneyball and was sort of kicking around. Um, uh, what was the other? The Blind Side. Yeah, yeah. Right, and he told our class like every story has to have a Darth Vader, but Darth Vader can't just want to kill you. Right. Right. Like yeah. there has to be a motivation that he doesn't. And he has to be almost as as I mean, uh, right? He has he has to make you want to cry. Right. You have to be able to look at right. what ha- what's happened to him and say, "Oh my gosh! If only, if right. only." Right. You know? There, but there, but for the grace of God, exactly. go I. Right. Yeah. Like if that's not built into all of your characters, mm-hmm. um, and as I've been doing the Appalachia book, like that's sort of what's been driving me is like, okay, like I got out, mm-hmm. right. But lots of people didn't, and the people that didn't are then sort of stuck in what is this dystopian? Sure. There's been no new business permits where I'm from since 1980. Yeah. No. Wow. Right. Wow. So you can imagine there's not an ATM in the downtown. Yeah. You have to drive out of downtown. If you get money, you go to the bank and write a check. Right. So when wow. right, and the and this is what I tell people: the fact that people are amazed when I say that is the problem. Yeah. Right. Of like course. that. And so if you can't sort of empathetically understand why they might be mad. Yeah. yeah. In a world where the only jobs that they had primarily were manufacturing mm-hmm. and or some kind of labor right. that we call well, labor. Well, we even see this here in Muncie. Yeah. I grew up in Indiana, and it is uh, uh, just amazing to me. And I'm in touch with uh, people I went to high school with who have chosen to stay yeah. in the small town where I grew up. And it's they they want to be there. And they want to have that life. Yeah. And who am I right. to say, no, you can't or you shouldn't? And 
there's a there's a tipping point somewhere, and with everybody, it's different. Yeah, you know, and and so what what I find, you know, and, and writers are, are normally schizophrenic anyway because they you have this this um, you are, are identifying with a character, you're identifying with yeah. a point of view, you're identifying with a moment, and you're right there, but then you're also looking at it critically, right? You know, and you're also saying, well, I could shape a story from this <laughs> right. by doing this right. and this. And so, you know, those are the moments where my critical mind kind of takes over. And I said, well, what might motivate somebody to make this choice that I do not agree with at all? Right. Right. But is there a way that this point of view is justified? And right. while I may not agree with it, you know, there are thousands of people who do. Right. And so where is the truth right. in that whole stew? Right. Right. Well, that's the empathy. Yeah. You know, I was asked, I was talking to some folks the other day, because I, you know, I have now also become the voice of, like, those people, right? Yeah. The people that all these, all my very liberal sure, friends don't understand. Yeah. And I just said, what's the last great working class book that you read? Mm. Like, what's the last great book that you've read by mm-hmm. somebody that's working class or from Appalachia or from one of these areas that told their story? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, and I'm like, right, mm-hmm. right. We don't think of great art coming out of there. Right. Like, it's not that I'm opposed to Diversity, I'm not. More is better. More has never not been better, right? right? It's right. always been better. Um, but you can't say, well, because we read Shakespeare, we can't read, like, modern Appalachian stories about life there. And and that, I feel like, is some of the issue is that mm-hmm. we have we have just discarded them, rightfully or wrongfully. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not a judgment. It's just a, to me, it's an analysis of, like, this is what's happened. We can much more easily understand why... Um, an African American in this country is angry, mm-hmm. and whenever I see somebody who's black and mad, I think that's probably the right response. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening, but I'm familiar with history, mm-hmm. right? So there's probably a lot of shit that I don't see, and we see somebody from Appalachia who's angry, and we're like, ah, they're dumb. Yeah, like they've made the choice to stay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there is this sort of dismi- there's a lack of understanding and historical empathy about. Not the friends that you know that made the decision, but the people that don't even know how to leave. Right. Right? And who have been left behind. That, I think, for me, as I move forward and think about art, like, that's the personal to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, you know, I tell folks, it's explaining, not excusing. Yeah. And that's the the trick. It's a a fine-ass line, isn't it? It's a fine line. Oh, my gosh. You know, because I, you know, I'm listening to you, and I was like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It is about empathy. It is about empathy. But... On the other hand, racism is never right. I mean, right, there's, ever. there's, you know, so you can't, when you're, when you're talking to somebody who grew up in a racist family, right. let's say, you know, you can explain it away and say, oh, they grew up that way, right? right? Oh, they listened to, right. to, you know, racist rhetoric their right. entire lives. And, and yet it's, it's still not, right. you know, you, you can excuse it. You shouldn't excuse it. No, you explain it. it. I mean, you can explain, explain it, but you don't excuse, excuse it. it. But here's the question, Right. So if a 10-year-old comes up and drops the N-word, mm-hmm. are you mad at the 10-year-old or are you mad at their parents? I'm mad at both. Who are you most mad at? Probably mad at I'm, I'm mad at the parents. When does it change? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's the thing. Like, I, so you know, I the, have three kids my, of, of my own, and I am surprised every single day. Every single day as they grow up. They don't just do what you say. When they, I, they well, I know. I'm surprised by their own agency all the time. Right. And so that's when I said both. I mean, right. that's exactly 
where that comes from. But if and I think believe- if you're dealing with a four-year-old, there's not as much agency as a five-year-old. There's right. a little bit more agency and then so on and so forth. But how much yeah. of that historical stuff builds up and becomes an impenetrable wall? Right. Like, right. So yeah. this is the empathy for me. Like, as I, like, this is a thing that I think, just like you said, like, you have to write strong, complex, not strong, complex women characters because mm-hmm. that doesn't exist, right? Because there's like two yeah. on TV, right? <laughs> and then like Jessica Jones, right? Who, yes. like, who And like the only complexity comes out of like rape and male control, right? Sure. Like, these, yeah. like this yes. is where complexity comes from, Which right? is a good friend of mine, you know, that was her problem with it is they said, yeah. okay, so now we're starting to see uh, you know, strong, complicated, flawed women, right. but because, most of the time it's right. because of abuse yeah. or it's because it of... It still demeanor. traces back to the male, so yeah, yeah. I get that, right? So, like, that makes sense. So, you know, it, it is a fine line for me because I'm writing about a group of people that there's a large part of this company country that think are not worth knowing mm-hmm. and who have done horrible, deplorable things. Although in the book, I also say, like, it's not like racism, it's fucking just in Appalachia. Yeah. The only place I was never seated... I had a, a, a black girlfriend for five years. The only place we were blatantly refused seating was Berkeley, California. Wow. And <laughs> when people say that, I'm like, yeah, why would you assume that, like, everybody there is not? Yeah. Right? There's yeah. always assholes. Again, going to the right? I, always. identity freezes the gesture. Right. So you think of Berkeley as it's always going to yeah. be like this. We walked in. New York she, will always be yeah. like this. Yeah. She had to drag me away because I was going to kick the guy's ass. And uh-huh. she's like, the cops are going to come and put us both in jail. <laughs> right? Because yeah. I'm black. They're taking me to jail. Uh-huh. And you're beating somebody in the face. And I'm yeah. like, oh. Oh, I see. I get it. This was yeah. one of those moments where I'm like, shit, this is what being black is. Yeah. Right? Like, this anger I can't even act on. Mm-hmm. Because the implication is that it was one of those moments where I was just like, I yeah. don't know anything about the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I've never in my life thought, oh, I can't get in a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a white dude. Yeah. I can do whatever I want, there, right? It's that yes. moment of like shit. And it will be about you as an individual, yeah. not you. Yeah, as they won't a, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The president won't have to like say, like, we do not feel that way about the world, right? Yes. Like So it is writing about this group of people at, you know, who are me who I am part of them is a, is it's weird to think like, oh my god, I'm gonna write things that people are just gonna hate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear it. That at what point do we it. stop blaming the four-year-old? Yeah. Right? Yeah. If there's been a hundred years of that, like, is it really their fault? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, as much as we like to think we do on a right. day-to-day basis, it's the same thing. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk before the election and even a little bit still is with implicit bias. You know, you don't want to confront those feelings in yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very easy for you to say, oh, well, you know, I had a black girlfriend, so I'm not a racist. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? I that, do, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. That, and yeah, By the way, I never uttered that line. No, I know, I know. But um, I, I had a job when I was living in the Twin Cities. I worked for uh, Penumbra Theater Company, which is this amazing organization. It is one of the few remaining professional African-American theater companies in the country. And I was their marketing director. And I remember being told by the artistic director, uh, Lou Bellamy, this amazing, amazing artist, one of my mentors, and he was also one of my grad school professors and has since retired from Penumbra. But he taught me so much. But I remember having a conversation with him where I was trying to figure out how I was going to you know, do this, this marketing plan. And he goes, play the race card. Right. And I looked at him and I said, Lou, I can't play the race card. And he goes, yeah, you can. You know, and I'm like, he goes, on behalf of the company, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we need this exposure because we, in the world of theater, 
artists of color do not get the same exposure right. as, say, you know, the Guthrie or the Shakespeare right. Theater. And that is absolutely true. And what so, kind of a white moment did you feel like? Yeah. That, right? Because they've been black their whole lives. Yeah. Like, you're trying to not. Yeah. And you're like, dude. Yeah, totally. And so it was that same sort of, sort of moment of, of, of illumination yeah. that I had that I was like, oh, my God, you're right. So I am, in fact, speaking for right. this organization, which, of, of course, you know, puts me in that space of having to think about right. it. And I, for the I, first, not, I don't know if you, but like, it's the first time. It was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was for the first time uh, from that internal perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, that is, um, it, it is, when I speak about that empathy and being able to write that stuff, like, ha- like that's why being around diversity and being, I always tell my students, diversity is actually not a thing. We are born into a world with billions of things. Mm-hmm. Diversity is the natural state of the planet. Mm-hmm. What's not natural is to be surrounded only by people like you. Right. You actually have to carve that out of the yeah. world. So if yeah. you are with that, that's the abnormal. But we talk about diversity mm-hmm. as if it is not the natural state right. of the world. Right. And just and every time I say it, they're like, oh, that's it. I'm like, that mm-hmm. shift in how you think then changes the way you look at it, right? Like if I'm surrounded by a bunch of old white guys, I've actually carved that out and that says mm-hmm. something about me. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing a diversity hire. I'm just doing right. a hire. Yeah. I've decided to not have anybody different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that says something different. And so that, like, the empathy that you get, I think, comes from living out in the world. Right. Like, not seeking diversity, but just seeking to have people that aren't, like... And, and coming at it with an openness and, right. and understanding. I used to be very, very hesitant to uh, to use the word universal because you know everybody's like well particularly when you're training young theater artists they're like well everybody feels love right. or you know everybody knows what it's like, like see but that's the right? thing you it's can immediately theater. start to yeah. like <laughs> and then and as you look at these sort of you know emotional states and it's like all right well what kind of love right you know there's there are you know 38,000 kinds of love right and and so you can't you know just group well all humans feel love right. well, no they don't so I was for a long time I was really <laughs> resistant to any sort of, of embracing of that but I had this experience it was actually when I was working on human terrain early on and I was developing the story I was writing from the perspective of the protagonist who is a a white female academic. Gee, really? Right. Look at me. I'm right. a white female academic. So, so that was a truth that was very easy for me to access. But what I realized is that the story that I wanted to tell and the story that it needed to be also had a very strong Iraqi female character yeah. who was sort of the at the same place in her life right. as the protagonist. And then I was terrified. So I spent probably about two or three months with like, okay, I can't write this play. I can't write this play. This is not my play anymore. And I had to give myself permission to say, all right, I understand that I've never been to Iraq. I understand that my feelings about the war and this conflict are very specific to me and my certain political space here in this country. However, I, I want to try and imagine what might be going through this person's yeah. mind or what their emotional state might be. And what happened was I threw myself into research, probably about six months worth of just nothing but reading. And I read poetry and I read about the hijab and I read about you know some of the issues that um, Muslim women, particularly in Iraq, are facing because of the invasion. And I just read and read and read and read and read. 
And did you go talk to anybody? I did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is, of course, you know, here I am in Muncie, Indiana, right? right? So I actually talked to a few students here on campus, yeah. and um, then I wrote a draft of the play. And luckily, I was able then to take that draft of the play to a reading in New York. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually able to interface with several actors um, who spoke Arabic, who mm -hmm. grew up in the Middle East. And I had a list of questions as long as my arm. And what this became to me was this, this incredible journey about empathy yeah. and about trying to figure out, okay, we are so different, and yes, that is never going to change, but yet we do have common experiences. Right. So, uh, you know, an Iraqi mother has motherhood. Right. My question then becomes, well, what does that look like right. under these completely different conditions? Right. You know, the, the impulses are the same, yeah. but how they get realized are very different. So the end of this journey for me was when uh, we did a reading of the play and um, my friend Eric Emery, who's a Ball State graduate, mm -hmm. who is now out in Los Angeles, um, has a connection with a theater company out in L.A., I Am a Theater Company. And marvelous, I know, it's great. I love Mar theater names. I like, they're always the best. Yeah, mar <laughs> and marvelous actors in this company. And so they did a reading of Human Terrain. And the way the film project started was um, that Prissa Barani, who is my producing partner, was in the audience for this reading. And she tried to find me during intermission. And she met me and was completely blown away that I was a white girl from the Midwest. So you didn't know her? I didn't know so her So she was just in the audience and, and then she became was in the your... audience and she grew up in Iran. She actually grew up during the Iran-Iraq war. And so she grew up in a war zone. And when she saw me, she's like, no way. There's no way you could have written this because there was something about, you know, the yeah. experience of the Iraqi character that really spoke to her. And I was like, holy crap. So, okay, maybe this is possible. Right. Maybe it is possible if you are responsible and if you are open to listening to people. Yeah. And it isn't just about, well, I'm going to write a character who is right. not like me and then I'm going to take it personally when people don't right. agree with it. No, if you're willing to open up and learn from right. other people, then perhaps it is possible. Well, because you can't write your intro. It's the, uh, uh, what was the Jack Nicholson where he's a writer. Somebody ran up to him and said, how do you write such great women characters? And oh, said, yeah, yeah, I yeah, write yeah, men yeah, yeah. I take yeah. all reason. But I, you can't just write the, the these other people as your interpretation of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, that's right? exactly right. Like it actually right. has to be them. And that's where the story, that's where storytelling, that's where responsibility becomes right. very, very important. And so Do your students have, get that? Well, we have this conversation in my playwriting class. Not even students, like, the, like, I'm guessing that most writers don't, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to everybody, but, like, I've done four years of research on my own family, traveled yeah. all around the country to understand, because I'm, I like to say, uh, I am of Appalachia, but I'm not from Appalachia, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. so I don't even have permission to tell that story. Mm -hmm. I grew up in northern Appalachia, but it's different than coal country. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people really truly understand how much you have to do yeah. to embody a thing that you don't understand. Absolutely. And that's, to me, what what the, the artistic struggle is about. I mean, that's what it is about. Right. And that's why we make art so that, and, and that's why the artist and the writer in particular goes through that. Right. 
And so it's fucking the, horrible. It, it is. It is horrible. Oh, my God. And I, you know, and I tell my students all the time, I said, if you don't feel like shit about what you've done, you're not doing it right. right. Because they, it, it's, it's, you have to have this process where you just doubt everything that you've done. Right. Because that's what prompts you to ask the right questions right. about it. It is you an know? eternal, it is an eternal struggle with, I mean, empathy doesn't stop, right? It's why, like, it, and it didn't dawn on me till. Four years into writing that I had to go in an introduction and go, oh, yeah, black people and women, mm-hmm. you're not going to see that. Yeah. Because I was so focused on telling this thing that, like, you just sort of lose that, like, holistic view of what – and it's like, different in a play. Like, there's not an introduction where you're not going to come yeah. out and be like, by so, the yeah, way. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, like, kinda, there are here's many what times, you're not going to see. There are many times where I wish there were. Right. <laughs> where they, uh, in the Restoration, they used to do that all the time. They yeah. used to have prologues to their plays. And so they would go out. And sometimes it was even the playwright. Yeah. Or it was the main actor. And he would say, okay, so here are the apology. problems with the play. Right. I'm going to do an apology yeah. ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. And if you're offended, then I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? That makes total sense to me. Like, that's my introduction yeah. to this book is all like <laughs> all of that like you know particularly again like particularly because it is just a group of people that are associated like if you hear my accent this is one of the invisible forces right mm-hmm. if you don't know me and you see me and hear my accent you think I voted for Trump and you think that there's a good chance that I you know mm-hmm. don't like blacks and you know think mm-hmm. women should stay at home yep like, identity freezes the gesture it does right like there are there are certain cues yeah that that we will pick up on and say oh that person is that right when in fact, we, you know, as I said before, what what is so fascinating to me about human beings is there's the, when they surprise us, right? Or when well, that's what's interesting. Yeah, I always tell folks, people will not surprise you if you don't let them. That's right. Like that is the essence of good storytelling. If you don't let people surprise you, they won't. Yeah, and it's not their fault. Yeah, yeah. My psychologist friends called it conforming to type. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you just say, well, that's who you are, and everything I see is through that lens. Well, fuck. That's yeah. all you're ever gonna see. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that is that is um, that I absolutely love about what we do, and as I'm thinking about the course of this conversation <laughs> that we've just had, is that we have touched on science, we've touched on <laughs> ethnography, we've touched on sociology, we've touched on history, we've touched on. I didn't get to the things that I wanted to get to either. Like it just spun out of control. Oh uh, well, I know, but that, but that's that is what that's what what we do. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in regards to the, the question that you asked about my students and do they get that, I think that, you know, we have, well, I, I have one day in my playwriting class where we do nothing but talk about responsibility. And I said, what that means is that you have to go into places where you don't know and you have to be willing to say, I don't know. So you have to want to read about what is going on in Iraq. If you want to write a play about the war in Iraq, then you better damn well be willing to do a crap ton of research. Right. right? Short of going over there and actually talking to people, as a lot of writers have done. Right. You know, you you have to be willing to put yourself there. And you have to be willing to learn about things you may not want to learn about. You have to be willing to learn about physics. You have to be willing to learn about, um, you know, racial discomfort. Right. And put yourself in a place, if you're going to write a character like that, you have to justify that point of view. Yeah. And it's not easy, right? No. So. Do you make them, here's... I'm just now thinking, like, how interesting would this be to have? Not even, not even a student, just like if you're working with writers, like, okay, your main character has to be somebody that has no identifiable relation to who you are as a person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So your main character has to be a woman who's, uh-huh. you know, I, I actually have a character 
exercise where they have to create a biography of somebody who is different from themselves. So they can't be, they have to be the other gender or they could be yeah. gender fluid or they could be, you know, it's, it's never as specific as it needs to be. Yeah. Right. So every answer to, it's a series of prompts, yeah. you know, what is this person's uh, worst nightmare? What is this person's, yeah. um, you know, overall goal in life? Yeah. What will make this sure, person sure. deliriously happy? Um, so they're making the sketch. Like yeah, they're yeah. making the sketch of the person, yeah. and it's it's always amazing to me how um, how they make just sort of little leaps right yeah. into well, uh, you know, I want my character. My character wants to be fulfilled by life for example. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, I have no idea what that means. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Right. Does that mean they want to, uh, you know, wake up next to, sure. uh, you know, a, a beautiful a blonde, uh, a woman and will that be fulfilling right. to them? Do they want to have a career that makes lots right. of, you know, I mean, so, so being unwilling to make hard choices that conflict with each other yeah. or, or that create those contradictions, right. right? And and so it's really fun for me, at least, to see the process of a semester. And oftentimes I wish I had longer with these sure. students. You I know, tell my can't. students I can't teach you to write in class. Yeah, it's, it's like, right. it's this is the, like, yeah. I don't mean to take your money and, you know, yeah. depress you, but like, yeah. go live, yep. go feel, yep. go figure out your voice, yep. go figure out what you want to say, mm-hmm. then come back to right. me. And about on the first day of class, I say that what we do, not only in the theater, but what writers do, is they it's it's a repeated attempt to make the impossible possible. Yeah. So you have to wrestle with a with an idea or a metaphor or a story yeah. or this character who doesn't let go of you, and you have to figure out what it's about yeah and you know and that requires time and that requires focus and that requires the the you know the awful uh process that we were talking about earlier and and where if you aren't if you are not completely frustrated and if you don't want to hang up your 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 spurs and say i'm done right then you're not doing it yeah correctly yeah in fact (laughs) it, it requires being willing to go through hell to yeah. make it happen. Do you, we got, so we just got a minute or two left. Uh, I could keep going for another I know, hour like this is so like, we, know, we didn't yeah. even get to like where you're from and all that yeah, stuff that we normally do. Right. Like we just ended up with this, so <laughs> we may have to do this again when you win your next award. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, I, my, everything I do starts with a question. Mm-hmm. So this book started with, I get asked all the time, why do those people vote against their self-interest? Mm-hmm. And my response was, well, why do you think they do? Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, clearly you don't know. And I've now heard this a thousand times. That, so this is a story. Mm-hmm. Did yours start with a question? Does yours start with a theme? Like, yeah. You- it, it's, I, I start with a question. And then I am, I'm an idea person. And I work with my playwrights on finding a hook. So some people are very compelled by character initially. So they'll see somebody Mm -hmm. that just fascinates them and they want to figure out why that's a character hook. Sometimes you get a story idea that's a plot hook for me. And I've gotten other sort of ways into stories, but the most common one for me is an idea, um, which is, okay, what if a person were placed in this situation where she couldn't make the right choice? So what you happens. have like that sci-fi, sci-fi what if? Yeah, like totally. If. I am I am drawn by what if, which is which is is really um, 
amazing to me how we are, you never stop discovering stuff about yeah. yourself. I mean, that's, that's the other thing about what we do that's so right. awesome is that you just learn stuff about yourself all right. the time. And the fact that I'm working on a sci-fi film right now is completely... Oh, is it actually a sci-fi film? It's a sci-fi film. Well, yeah, I guess it's 80 years in the future. Yeah, and I was pushed to do this by by Daniela, who's my manager. She's like, every... She said, so you provided me with a list of films that are your favorite films of the last five years. And I said, yes. You had 20 films. Interstellar. The Martian. Right. I mean, and and so... The Martian. Have you read the book? Yeah. The book is so good. The book is good. It's so... I mean, the book is good. I thought the movie is great. My favorite novel of all time is Carl Sagan's, is Carl Sagan's Contact. Oh, Contact, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. And and so she's like, you love <laughs> science fiction. You love future speculation. Right. You love space. Why don't you write about that? And I'm like, because I'm not, because I can't do that. Right. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, yes, you can. Right. So that's my current journey right now, which is, which, you know, if you would have told me a year ago I was going to be writing a sci-fi film, I would have laughed in your face. Right. And, which is To go just, from the pen award to a sci-fi film does yeah. seem like a weird deviation. Well, I know. And so, <laughs> but, but the other thing, too, though. But also right, not, right? Because you go yeah. to the place where the story needs to be told. See, and that's it. And, right. and there are as many, I think social justice themes in science fiction as there are in Oh, shit. I mean, that's where it started, right? That's what it's about, right? Right. I mean, like, that science fiction is about talking about things that humans aren't capable of talking about yet. Exactly. And it's about pushing the envelope and how far is too far and how far are we willing to go and, you know, what are what are the limits of what human beings are capable of? Yeah. I mean, I grew up reading, um, you know, Asimov and Huxley and, like, all, like, devouring them I, I had this discussion with another writer like it was the place science fiction is the place that boys little boys were able to access emotions in a way that was in complex thinking yeah. in ways that they weren't in the world yeah right because you're dealing with the future of man like yeah. where what other place does an eight year old or nine or ten year old like somebody's asking you to think complexly about right something? and it's very I love Brad that you said little boys little boys are allowed to access emotions because my experience was that oh girls don't read sci-fi girls don't like that stuff girls don't like that stuff at all right so i was being then shoved into another corner and well yeah i do actually like isaac asimov yeah i do actually like this and and not being able to sort of accept that that you know goofy geeky side of myself yeah. until I married my husband who is you know geek personified, yeah. and then you know he's bringing all this stuff out of yeah. me. It's like oh my god, this is great. You know, my wife's a ballet dancer who now has seen every Marvel movie. Yes, like, like I have like all the, like you got to read like The Dark Knight Returns. Yes. Like here's the like she and she's like this is really good. I'm like this is when. when I sort of, over the years, because I used to work at Wire and I worked at MIT, mm-hmm. and, like, I have bristled about the geek label. Like, I get, like, culturally, I understand, like, what that identity was as a kid. Mm-hmm. But when I talk about the art of it, I'm like, you guys don't understand. Like, yeah. there wasn't places where I could ask deep, meaningful questions in the world. Like, that wasn't, people weren't, when I was playing sports, that wasn't a thing. Right. But I can go read um, Asimov uh-huh. and every one of those what ifs are really deeply complex like yes. when I watch Blade Runner or oh. read Bla- like you know do electric sheet <laughs> like, the, dream electric, right? I love it I'm like shit man like that's some dystopian stuff about what matters in the world yeah right yeah. like that is absolutely and like I would like 
cry and, and these things would affect me. And it felt like the only place that I could do that. Yeah. I'm wondering, honestly, uh, and I, I do this sometimes, and it's not this is not regret in any way, shape, or form, but I wonder where I would be at this point in my life if I were... Not allowed. That's not the right word right. because my parents would have would have you know my parents let me read whatever they would have just given me more yeah, books right right uh, but if I were encouraged let's say yeah. to read sci-fi as a yeah. kid and encouraged to explore that because yeah. it just wasn't a thing that that you know girls where I grew up did no I don't think any I mean it, I think that's changed today but I wonder yeah, how totally. much of that is because like the literature of that that like girls you could read. Like it what like girls were expected to. I wrote a, an essay called uh, "Why Boys Can't Read." So I used to teach middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, I get really annoyed when teachers in 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 el- the profession, largely women. Most principals are women. Mm-hmm. Um, most teachers are women. In the English department, most teachers are even more. It's like eighty percent women. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I presented the scenario, right? Yeah. And I said, so if there was a place where there was a predominant of one gender and they were saying another gender couldn't do something because they weren't capable of it, what would they do? Mm-hmm. Well, we know what we've done with girls in science. Yeah. The gap between boys' reading levels is greater than girls in science. Mm-hmm. The greater and getting bigger. So when I hear people say, well, they can't sit down, they can't do, they, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. because the expectation is that, is they, that can. they can't. Because exactly. I grew up reading. Yeah. So the, yeah. The, my brain is not different from a 10 year old. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, like it is. So I think. Maybe the, a little more seasoned. Right. right yeah. But those spaces, I think, are now different, right? Where like the geek culture now is, is okay for girls, mm-hmm. but the reading culture is not. For boys. Right. Yeah. So I don't even know. I, I would get, I wonder how much of the science fiction and fantasy today is not even read by boys. Um, that's a really good question. Right? Like, that's this is the really thing that question. really interests me because yeah. go to Gen Con and it's 50-50. You know, and it's funny because my son is, he's 14 and, you know, he's dealt with uh, attention problems, you know, his whole time growing up, which is, you know, very common anymore. Yeah. But you give him a book, which we always have done. I mean, we are, we are a family of readers. Yeah. And you give him a book, and he will sit there, and he will sit still. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that it's really hard for him to sit through a 45-minute class right. in his high school, he will sit and read a book for two hours. Right. But we – so we, this this gets back to that teaching thing, and then, and then we'll go. But, like, yeah. we expect boys who are going through deeply emotional – like, they're filled with energy and testosterone where they have to move around and say, sit down and shut up and be quiet. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, well, we need to drug them because they're not doing the thing that they're – physiologically, they are incapable right. of doing. Yeah. Right. This is a whole other two. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but, but, the, but the writing and the reading stuff about that I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, and it just anyway, it gets back to like a lot of like what is the purpose of art and like how purposeful like your kids read. I'm guessing because they've always been taught to read. Yes. Right. They've like always been is, taught to read, and it's like a it's like a window to them. It's right. Like. It, so they don't have an attention problem. Right. There's a different problem that we've said, well, they can't sit That's down. exactly right. right. And and they are, like Ian in particular, reads not only for entertainment, he also reads for comfort. Right. When he gets in... That's in, our chair. It's okay. When he gets in yeah. trouble or when he has... Um, uh, you know, a, a, a something bad happens yeah. to him. One of the first things he wants to do is go and read a book. Go into I mean, a different it's like world. A, it's 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 his escape. Yeah, it's also it's I mean, what reading is. It's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in. This has been great. I uh, had a blast. Thank you, Brad. And so then, and when you win your next big thing, we're going to come <laughs> back and we're going to talk about where you're from and your family. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks. So thanks a bunch. <laughs>
Well, there you have it. That was my conversation with Jen. She's delightful. She's smart. You can see why she wins wards and big ass wards. Um, I love talking to her. Could do that all all day long. Uh, just a reminder, geekypress.com backslash who's your lit. You can buy the literary magazine. You can read 19 writers from Indiana, 24 pieces. Uh, the f- that's out May 19th, um, although you can buy it now. The release party is on the 19th. We'll be opening up fall submissions. We're, people are submitting work now. Um, we won't get to reading it for, for quite some time. Um, but the submissions are kind of always open. So if you're interested in that. Otherwise, we hope that you'll keep coming back. We hope that you'll drop us a note and let us know what you're doing. Um, we hope that you follow all the events that you can find at thegeekypress.com. That navigation across the top will keep you up to date, and we have a calendar of all of our events. But until the next time, I will see you around the Internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.